Behold! The sword of power. Excalibur. to the Oh Gosh, Oh Golly, Oh Wow podcast, the podcast where we talk about the Marvel Comics series Excalibur and nothing but Excalibur every week for 126 plus weeks. This week in episode 26, we're discussing Excalibur number 25, Guess Who's Coming for Phoenix, in which the cross-time caper is still over, but Excalibur's troubles aren't over, as Galactus and his plucky sidekick Frankie Ray are here to deal with the Phoenix once and for all. Excalibur number 25 was originally published in August 1990, and the creative team is Chris Claremont on writing, Chris Wozniak on pencils, Al Milgrom on inks, Patty Cockrum on colors, Rick Parker on letters, and Terry Cavanaugh on editing. We have traveled to virtually the other side of the universe. How did you find me at such a distance? I always find what I look for. Since I was a kid, anywhere I needed to be, bam! I've been there. That's why Galactus gave me your old job after just one interview. I said I had some kind of trick gene that was triggered when you healed me. Nova, get down! We've got a super smart guest with us today who I know is excited to talk through the cosmic corners of Marvel Comics, who I will introduce in a moment. But first, your Earthbound regulars. I am Dr. Anna Papard. I write and talk about a bunch of things like sex and gender and comics and sometimes basketball. You can find me writing regularly over at ComicsXF and find me doing regular talking about comics on the podcast Three Panel Contrast with Andrew from this podcast. I'm also putting in work as Kurt Wagner's unofficial PR manager. For reasons that escape me, he continues to decline my calls and relevant to today's issue. I think I've read every comic book appearance of one Frankie Ray, aka Nova. Not on purpose, these things nice. just happen. I am also familiar with Frankie from the Silver Surfer cartoon show and read all of her dialogue in that voice forever after. Me and Frankie are accompanied as always by Mav, take it away. In the beginning, Frith made the world and then he made all the animals and they were all the same. And no, that's not right. Uh, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the Arch Genesis Destroyer of Worlds. Either, nope, wrong, still wrong. Hi, I'm Chris Maverick. <laughs> I'm going to uh, be so derailed by you throwing a Watership Down reference at me at the start of the podcast, Mav. That's like one of the traumatic experiences of my childhood. I, mine too, and yet I love it. I adore it. I know, I do level. too. It I is so too. sad. But <laughs> but I felt, it, I felt if I was going to get one in, you know, over the course of this series, this is the one, you know? Sure. <laughs> um, but yeah, my name is Christopher Maverick. You can call me Mav. Uh, I am a PhD candidate in literary and cultural studies in English. I'm an adjunct instructor at a couple of universities. I am the host of a podcast called Vox Popcast, where we 
you know, read about pop culture and I'm a lifelong comic fan looking forward to this. And I just, you know, if, if it's your first time, I love obscure references, hence that. <laughs> so, and I gave it away. Now everybody knows it's Watership Down, which, you know, when you're done with Excalibur, everyone go read Watership Down and then watch the movie, but have tissues. Definitely, <laughs> definitely tissues and... I don't know. I was like something to calm you down. Not not um, right before you go to bed. No, <laughs> it, is not a, no. it is not a right before bed movie. I would say or even book. just during the pandemic in general, maybe is not a good option <laughs> and stay away from that plague dogs as well. Um, Andrew, tell us a little bit about yourself. I'm Dr. Andrew DeMann. I'm a lecturer at St. Jerome's University, co-host of Three Panel Contrast with Anna. And um, I am the project lead for the Claremont run, which is just now getting in a whole stack of data on Excalibur. So I've been doing Woo! a lot of Excalibur awesome. stuff, which has been really, really fun. I saw graphs and charts. I was exciting. Graphs and charts. I missed my graphs and charts. Kitty dominating the charts. Very much so. <laughs> wow. Well, we are joined, as always, by a super special guest who does lots of thinking about X-Men and comics in the wider Marvel universe. The pod is thrilled to welcome Steve Sellers. Welcome, Steve. Oh, thank you. I'm glad to be here. I've been a fan of Excalibur since forever, and I've been almost a lifelong uh, Chris Claremont fan, so I had to take part in this, um, and I'm glad to be here. We are so thrilled to have you. We'll tell our listeners a little bit more about you. So Steve has been a fan of superheroes ever since Superman the movie, but it took the JSA, the Legion of Superheroes, Dragonlance, Lord of the Rings, Twilight Zone, and Chris Claremont's legendary run on the X-Men to make him a writer and longtime fan of comics, fantasy, and sci-fi. Steve is the co-creator of White Druid and Michael Nero and Guardians of Alayum for Omen Comics, and he is the creator of Blitz and Shockwave for Revelation Comics. He is also the author of the short story Blood and Ashes for Perspectives, an anthology, coming out soon from ASAP Comics UK. Now, Steve, we obviously know you're not new to Excalibur, but tell us a little bit about your Excalibur and X-Men origin story. You said you've been reading it your whole life. So what does that mean? When did you discover it? What's the origin? Yeah, um, I was probably like around five or six, I'm thinking. It's been wow. almost like as long as I can remember. Um, I was reading like uh, kids science magazines and there was a, a particular issue that focused on the X-Men and, and it had a lot of the, this was during the John Romita run uh, around that period uh, with Claremont. And um, I jumped in um, after reading that because these characters look so cool. And you're going <laughs> to like this, Anna. One of the characters that really struck me was Nightcrawler. Oh. Um, he just really looked cool. And, and he was, and he's still, <laughs> I would say my second favorite X-Men uh, after Kitty Pride. So um, the fact that both of them are in Excalibur was something I couldn't overlook. Now, as far as Excalibur specifically, I did dip out for like a few years out of comics. Um, you know, it was just, I would, I did a bit of moving and, and things like this and, and I got back into it. Uh, I think I was looking at a spinner rack over in a Air Force Base uh exchange yeah i think it was probably one of those and i just saw the first issue of excalibur sitting right there and i had never seen alan davis's art before and that cover absolutely drew me in it was whimsical um, but at the same time, you know, there was a level of realism I hadn't seen in comics up to that point, you know, and just everything just really looked cool. And the composition of it was great. Uh, the Warwolves looked like absolutely funny looking characters. I mean, just all these kinds of weird, unique things. And and it was a cover that didn't take itself ser too seriously, which I really, really loved. But uh, when I saw characters that I recognized from from the old X-Men stuff that I had read, especially Kurt and Kitty and also Rachel, I, I'm a huge fan of hers. 
And in fact, uh, the first issue that I had read of Uncanny X-Men was 188, which focused on Rachel. So I was absolutely in there. And, and ever since, uh, yeah, I was stuck with Excalibur pretty much as long as Claremont did. And then I read the Alan Davis run by that he did on his own, which was awesome. Yeah, so I have like all the stuff from, you know, all, all both of those runs. I even read like a good chunk of the War of Alice run, things like that. So were you living in the UK when you read it? Like, would you have been reading it there? Because it seems like you've maybe had a past in which you've traveled around because you mentioned Air Force bases. No, 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 no. I didn't. I was not overseas. Uh, my family was generally around in the East Coast. So um, I actually right now just made the return back to my hometown, more or less. Oh. Um, but uh, where I was was maybe a little bit south of that. I would say like North Carolina. Ah, I see. Well, I was wondering because your comics work was for UK publishers, so I wasn't sure what your connection was. Mm, no, 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 no. Uh, I met him online, so you know, <laughs> and and that's the beauty of the internet. You know, it crosses yeah. all borders. It and does. That's why indeed. I'm here with you guys. So. <laughs> well, we're thrilled to have you with us. I want to hear more of obviously your first impressions of this particular issue and whether you have memories of reading it the first time but we will get back to that after we do our little issue summary so we've got lots of lovely listeners reading along with the pod thank you so much as always for your kind and loyal support but as always we're gonna do that little plot summary so Excalibur are home they're standing on the beach outside the lighthouse for the first time in a good long while everybody's looking forward to spending some time in bed but oh no Galactus is there along with his faithful shiny gold herald Nova Apparently, Galactus has decided that Phoenix's continued existence is a threat to his survival that he cannot accept. So, he wants to separate the Phoenix Force from Rachel and destroy it without any regard for what that might do to Rachel. Rachel is displeased with Nova's attitude, and Psychic punches her to the moon. It's pretty awesome. On the moon, Nova meets the Watcher, who swears he won't interfere this time. Back on Earth, Galactus starts assembling a machine to drain Rachel's power, and Excalibur is given an ultimatum. Surrender Rachel, or they and the whole planet will suffer the consequences. Naturally, Excalibur chooses family. A series of battles ensue with various Galactus surrogates, basically a bunch of weird monsters, while Alistair pulls Rachel into the lighthouse, saying he has a plan. In the lighthouse, we finally get a callback to a plot thread that's been dangling for a very long time as Rachel and Alistair encounter the dimensional portal in the basement of the lighthouse, last seen in Excalibur number 11. And what a callback! In this dimension, Excalibur are cat people in a rock band. Cat Nightcrawler plays bass. Thankfully, the portal blinks closed, putting Rachel and Alistair back in the regular lighthouse, where Alistair proceeds to recover a sciency doohickey, which is apparently part of his plan. Outside the lighthouse, Excalibur keeps fighting. Roma shows up to watch. Rachel talks to death and decks Nova a second time. Alistair also puts his plan into motion using a device that's definitely not a sonic screwdriver. Alistair attempts to lose Galactus in a trans-temporal anomaly. It doesn't work. This enrages Megan, who siphons power from the Earth to grow to a tremendous size equal to Galactus. But Rachel talks her out of fighting him, saying she'll destroy the Earth in the process. Instead, Rachel surrenders to Galactus's machine. But when it starts to separate her from the Phoenix Force, the stars start to go out. Because the Phoenix Force is a living embodiment of the primal forces, destroying it would also destroy all life in the universe, leaving Galactus with nothing to eat. Rachel's power is restored, and Galactus leaves. Finally, we check in with Kitty Pride, who still believes Excalibur are lost on their cross-time caper. Satter Courtney is enrolling her in St. Cyril's boarding school to prepare her socially for university. Kitty is not pleased, but figures that within a term, tops, she'll be running the place. Dum, dum, dum. All right. <laughs> First impressions, starting with you, Steve. What did you make of this, our second Wozniak issue, commemorating the end of the cross-time caper? Anything you want to rant or rave about right off the top? Oh, yeah. Um, this particular issue was one that I think kind of disappointed pointed me the first time I read it. I didn't like Wozniak's art. I, I'm sorry. Yeah. I, I think a lot of people didn't. And, and honestly, though, um, over the years, I've kind of really thought a little bit about it. 
And the thing with me is I don't, I can't really blame Wozniak for it because nobody could follow Alan Davis and nobody mm -hmm. certainly can follow Alan Davis on this book. I think I discussed this with Andrew at one point, but I think one of the things that I had said was is that the thing with Alan Davis that made it such a really good fit on Excalibur was the fact that he got Claremont's references. The fact that, you know, he's British by birth and, and understood a lot of the stuff that was that, he, that Claremont was trying to put in. A lot of the TV references, a lot of the things like that. Wozniak, I think, came in having none of this. And in addition, <laughs> not being the draftsman that Davis is, not being able to uh, capture the whimsy and the humor as well as Davis is, I think he just came in and just did his best, and it just was nowhere near good enough, unfortunately. Um, and it's kind of sad, because I actually don't think he's that bad of an artist today. I think he, on another book, a book that would have suited him better, maybe he might have done better. But on Excalibur, it's just asking the impossible. And one other thing that kind of occurred to me also as well was that when I went and did, I do a retrospective on Claremont's X-Men, uh, on Uncanny X-Men particularly, for Comic Crusaders. And the last one that I did not too long ago was about the Paul Smith run. And um, when I looked at the Brood Saga, having reread it, I realized that Claremont had written the scripts for the end of the Brood Saga for Dave Cockrum, who was the previous mm -hmm. artist. And I think that there was a similar problem here because um, what I think happened was is that Claremont wrote the script for Alan Davis. And I think had Alan Davis drawn this issue, it would have been a million times better. I mean, not oh, just yeah. because Davis is that good, but because it was written for him. He knew the beats. And Wozniak didn't get those beats, I don't think. And because of that, I think um, you have a massive disappointment on a visual level. I think the writing is quite good. I think that Claremont really, I mean, you can tell Claremont has passion for this story because just look at awesome moments like Rachel punching out Frankie Ray. So that, is, that is epic. And then you have, you know, these really big confrontations with, you know, Phoenix and Galactus and Phoenix and Death and, you know, uh, Nightcrawler, you know, trying to barely hold on, you know, while he's being overwhelmed by Galactus and, and Nova and all this other things that are going on. But it's just he didn't have Davis doing the work visually. And I think that the issue unfortunately suffers for that. Which is a shame because I think had Davis drawn it, it would have been amazing. These would be definitely iconic moments in Rachel's history. I feel a couple of her lines here, you know, the, the fight with Nova is epic. And I want to talk a little bit about that specifically, but also the line that she has to death of like, I'll be seeing you. And she says like, not if I see you first. And it's a great little panel actually just in this comic. But I, mm -hmm. I, I just think that again, with a different art style, it would have been a super iconic moment in her history. And it just isn't that for me because of that. Um, other first impressions? Oh, oh yes. Um, I, I don't know if we're going to be discussing this in more depth uh, at some point. But uh, one thing that really kind of struck me, um, and I know, I think this was another thing that I had talked about with Andrew at some point, was that Al, uh, Alistair Stewart is very much a Doctor Who character. Oh, and yeah. he's an and he's an analog of the doctor, definitely. You know, he takes his name from, you know, Brigadier Stewart, all of that. Claremont tips his hand here completely. When he goes in and he and he mentions when he gives the the doohickey uh, from the lighthouse, you know, he mentions how he was talking about transtemporal physics with some chap from Gallifrey. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I wonder who he's talking about. You know, would it be a certain time 
more maybe i just out of just a wild guess um but that just made me laugh as a because i'm a huge huvian and mm -hmm. when i see these kinds of references i just my my fanboy part really goes through the roof were you, yeah, then? I mean, I, were yeah, you a big who, doctor who fan back then when when you would have read this the first time I wasn't, unfortunately. Neither was I, I, I that's why, yeah. Yeah, I, I had seen a little bit, but the problem was is that they had never shown Doctor Who, you know, where I lived. And when um, I had seen it at all, it was either because I bought it on a DVD, which was hard to find, or like I watched the 8th Doctor TV movie. And until um, 2005 with New Who, I, I had no idea beyond the name and the fact that, you know, you had Tom Baker, you know, wearing this ridiculous scarf, you know. I'd watched some of those Tom Baker ones, like yeah. when I was a kid, because we could get them on VHS tapes from the library. And I did ah. not know what, what to make of that show. <laughs> Andrew or Mav, any first impressions from you that you're desperate to talk about? Uh, just to expand on what Steve was saying. I, I would just throw in that one of the things that we haven't always credited Davis with, just because it hasn't naturally come up, is his efficiency. Yes. Uh, like we talked a couple issues ago about what he does in issue 23 and just the amount of story that's in there uh, and i think exactly as steve is saying here like like had davis been illustrating this i think all the different pieces would be communicated much faster and much more effectively there's even some pieces of the script that seems like claremont is overcompensating for the art a little bit where he's like mm. explaining what's happening in the fight um so yeah i just think that's another aspect of davis that we can throw into our our usual flattery of him <laughs> oh god yeah because i mean there are so many character beats here that are important we get megan drawing strength from the earth which is like mm -hmm. important important aspect of her powers that we haven't really fully explored we get some resolution or at least some evolution of the is nightcrawler the leader of excalibur plot there's like a lot going on here in addition to these super 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 important character building for rachel uh, Mav, i hated that though because we've oh, okay, been fighting ahead. about that since the yeah. first like, issue of our show and i'm yeah. reading that and phoenix is like no kurt you're the leader Yep. Yeah, proven. Yeah. Well, when two of them have been, you know, working with Kurt for years, I mean, they're going to gravitate to him. That's just natural. She's just mm -hmm. flattering his ego. She's the real leader. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, okay, we'll talk about that a little bit more, maybe. Yeah. But Matt, first impressions. Also, re reiterating everything, um, I think Steve said something very important, which was the comment about this being written for Davis, very, very, very clearly written for Davis. And this comes up, um, the way that we tend to view comics as fans is often, you know, the artist is always the hotshot. When you're a scholar, you start thinking of the writer as the hotshot. I mean, Andrew, your entire work is, you know, called the Claremont run, right? Like it, it is clearly privileging him despite the fact that he worked with a dozen artists over the course of the, uh, of, of that time. Right. And so when we do this, we, we don't really think about the fact that these stories are really generated by two people. It, it is a synergy between two in, individuals. And that really, really matters. Claremont and Byrne is some of the best comic book writing I've ever seen. Claremont and, and Davis, also some of the best comic book writing I've ever seen. Claremont and Smith. <laughs> Claremont has, yep. he, he has great chemistry with several people, but the stories we, he tells with Jim Lee, or Mark Silvestri, or John Byrne, or Alan Davis, they're all very, very different from each other, and they're paced in a way that works for that artist. So this one, to me, I find it odd because you guys, you guys talk about how good the writing is, and I can see that it should be there, but it feels wrong from a storytelling point of view in a way that like just it just sort of feels inefficient is one way of, uh, of of saying it but also frenetic like everyone seems sort of off because i'm not sure like i'm not sure what alistair's actual plan was other than to make a doctor who joke and 
I feel like because <laughs> he's like, you know, he, like his plan was, I've got a plan. Let me go in there and get my thing. And then it's like, oh, it's in your pocket after all. And then he goes and points at it and it doesn't work. And that's the end of it. I don't know what that was supposed to be other than I feel like the plan was, well, Alan and I work well together. So I will write in the script and then do a and then do a Doctor Who. And it will just work out, but it doesn't here. And as a Doctor Who fan now, other than the fact that he clearly was grabbing a, grabbing a sonic screwdriver, I'm not sure what I was supposed to get from it. And I um, didn't understand it back then at all. Well, I have I a mean, thought about that. Okay. Yeah, um, I, I wonder if you're going to say the same thing that I was going to say, Steve, about the nature of Galactus. And but I, I, I no, like, no, 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 yeah, no. Okay. I think I, th I think he's trying to pull a swerve here. I think he was trying to pull a Doctor Who saves the day thing because mm -hmm. the doctor at the end always is the one doing this. Like, okay, yeah. I have this brilliant thing that I'm going to come out and I'm going to do this thing with the sonic screwdriver and all of this. And I'm going to save the day because I'm the smartest guy in the room. And with Alistair tries to do the same thing, it's like he's just not. He's definitely is one of those guys that, you know, kind of thinks that he is. But it's just that that moment when, when the culture pay is required, he's not the doctor. And That's so, what I thought too. Except for yeah. I didn't know who. Except for I didn't know about that in 1991. Right. <laughs> like right, I, right. I, did, I, in 2021, I, I totally do. But in 1991, so I'm not sure how it was supposed to. I'm not sure if that's how it was supposed to play off, or if it's the thing Anna's. I mean, which I, what I imagine you're about to say about just Galactus being overly powered. It doesn't matter, right? Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, doing all of these things to try and defeat the Galactus, making the point about the heroes being, they can't possibly measure up to Galactus is kind of Galactus's whole deal. But I don't actually, I want to get back to some of the cosmic stuff because I actually wanted to get, let Andrew have a chance to respond to some of the discussion that we were having about the art because you have this project called Claremont Run, Andrew, that does privilege the writer just in its name and in the fact that Claremont is is the central person that's linking all of these stories together. But I know that you do do a lot of work on art and collaboration and how Claremont works as a writer as part of your project. So I wondered if you could actually say a couple of words about that. Like when you're dealing with that collaborative relationship, how does that sort of factor into how you're analyzing stuff within your larger project? Um, kind of exactly as Matt was describing it. Like we're, we're isolating Claremont, but Claremont is someone who is working in a context. So you account for that context. So again, how does Claremont's writing differ when he works with Smith versus Burn? There's still Claremont writing there, right? So I think you can still kind of create that isolation. Um, and he's the connective tissue. I mean, that's one of the things that's so remarkable about the Claremont run is it's a 16-year single author run, um, almost without exception, which is unheard of by today's standards or the standards at the time. It's it's the longest we have outside of Eric Larson's Savage Dragon. Yeah, which is creator-owned. Um, yeah, exactly. Um, so it's a different piece. So I, I think it's really just about you know what I'm looking at. I'm looking at Claremont's writing, but I'm not in any way suggesting that Claremont is the creator of X-Men comics or Excalibur comics, right? So you just kind of think about how he changes and adjusts his style according to the needs of um, the rest of the team, the editorial, um, the time that he's working with, the characters that he has to play with, all that stuff. I mean, would you say that it's kind of useful to be looking centrally at Claremont as a point of comparison? Because since you have this long interrupt, uninterrupted run of him as the writer, so one, at least one of the central creative forces on this title, you can compare how sort of artwork affects stories and how artwork adjusts to stories and that kind of thing, right? <laughs> Almost by, by choosing the lens of Claremont, right? Yeah, what, what, what you're describing will make me be a nerd about charts and graphs again, because you're describing variables, <laughs> right? 
right? Uh, and like, it's complicated because you can't always isolate variables. So for example, maybe Claremont was a different writer when he was with Byrne, or maybe Claremont was a different writer with Byrne because he had grown up a little bit or mm -hmm. because he had been through a divorce. You know what I mean? Like, how do you isolate what is creating the difference? Um, yeah. So the short answer is yes. And I'll yeah. not be too nerdy about it. <laughs> yeah. And Claremont always said, you know, I write for my artists. You know, he, he, he wrote yeah, a, yeah. a certain way for Cockrum. He wrote a certain way from Byrne, a certain way for Smitty you know, and for Davis. So, you know, I, I, I definitely think that there's a certain amount of thought process. It's like, okay, what am I going to put in if I'm writing a, a Davis script? Well, you put in all these crazy cosmic things with Rachel and you have Doctor Who jokes left and right. You know, you wouldn't do the same for Wozniak. Yeah, even which character gets privileged is very much um, related yeah. to the artist. Uh, the famous example being um, um, Nightcrawler. Dave Cockrum loved Nightcrawler. Couldn't get enough Nightcrawler. And I mm. can relate. Uh, <laughs> and as a result of that, Nightcrawler becomes the star. And then he's not. And then it's so funny because that really dictates my X-Men fandom too, because I don't like <laughs> I don't like the Ramita Jr. X-Men as much, even though I really do like it, but because I don't like his depiction of Nightcrawler, I don't like it as much. Yeah, and then I don't like I don't like Burns' rendition of Nightcrawler that much either. I don't hate it, but I just don't like it as much as Smith or Cockrum. There's just not the same love for the character that comes across in the art when he does him. And that really affects my kind of, I don't know, like I'm, I'm the way that I'm going to identify and place myself in this world. So, I mean, there's so many, there's so many Can we many agree ways, that but, Davis yeah. is, the, is, is Nightcrawler's greatest artist ever? He's the one I think about when I picture him. Yeah. He is. I mean, he's not perfect for me. There's like some ways that he sometimes draws Kurt a little bit too movie starry, especially mm -hmm. later in Excalibur and in his, you know, when he does Uncanny X-Men in the 2000s with Chris Claremont. I don't love it. I don't mm -hmm. think he does like a great job with his tail all the time either, if I'm being mm -hmm. honest. It's a criticism <laughs> I could make of his art. But um, definitely in terms of the ways that he sort of humanizes Kurt and defines his unique body with a lot of care is something I always praise on the podcast that, yeah, definitely. I don't think there's a lot of debate that he's sort of probably the definitive Nightcrawler artist. Um, let's talk a little bit more specifically about some of the stuff in this issue. And I want to talk about where it fits in with Marvel Cosmic, which is something that we brought up before. So when we talk about Marvel Cosmic, we're kind of talking about the cosmic corner of the Marvel Universe. There's a number of sort of characters and titles and franchises that are bound up in that, including Guardians of the Galaxy and the Silver Surfer, characters like the Skrulls. So Marvel Cosmic goes back to the pages of Fantastic Four, just almost to the start of Fantastic Four and the introduction of the Skrulls and I think Fantastic Four number three, I hope I'm getting that right. Um, and of course, the introduction of Galactus and the Silver Surfer in Fantastic Four number 48 from 1966. Marvel Cosmic kind of picks up steam in the late 1970s under a number of different writers and artists, but Jim Starlin in particular was a big force in developing the Marvel Cosmic universe. Events like Infinity Gauntlet and stuff were under Starlin's, um, whatever, under Starlin's creative vision extending from that, I would say. Um, now, Steve, I know you have a lot of affection for Marvel Cosmic because we talked about it a little bit before the podcast, and I've been loving hearing your takes on some of the elements of the Marvel Universe to your writing. So what makes Marvel Cosmic like a little different? And like, what's at stake when we have Marvel Cosmic interacting with the, I want to say main Marvel Universe, they're both part of the main Marvel Universe, but because Marvel Cosmic is kind of off on its side a little bit, how is it useful or interesting to kind of bring some of those cosmic elements sort of into this main universe? And what does it do for us in this particular story? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I, I really do believe when Marvel Cosmic was created, it was built on a pulp science fiction 
fiction foundation. I think writers like E. Doc Smith in particular were a huge influence on Stan Lee and Jack Kirby. I actually had done um, a discussion at one point with uh, Fred Van Lente and his wife and mm-hmm. um, for Comic Crusaders. And um, he pretty much had said that, you know, pulp science fiction was a big, big influence on Kirby uh, and also on Lee. And I think mm-hmm. uh, we definitely see that transforming into something else. Uh, with Lee, I think what he did with Cosmic, what he did with everything, which is, you know, he, he didn't create all of these ideas. What he did was make them human. What he did was, you know, he bring humanity and characterization on a level that we hadn't seen before. And then later writers and, and artists, um, Starlin in particular, I honestly consider Starlin as definitive for Marvel Cosmic yeah. as Claremont is for the X-Men. He is just yeah. that definitive, particularly on uh, the characters of Thanos and Adam Warlock. Yeah. Um, I, I don't, I can't imagine anyone else writing those characters and doing them ha- even halfway justice uh, compared to him. So um, we have that. But I think a lot of it is, is that um, a lot of these divinities, these these powerful beings like Death and Galactus and so forth, they are meant to represent concepts, philosophical concepts. You know, the idea, you know, with eternity is represents not just the universe, but also all life in it. Um, you know, you have the Phoenix entity, which, you know, is the primal force of creation. Um, you have Galactus, who, you know, who is basically a balance between eternity and death. So, and, and all of their, they're trying to maintain this careful balance of, of opposites and all these forces all of that is just so interesting and but a lot of times with with cosmic storytelling what they really are doing is they are taking these characters who are deeply flawed because adam warlock is certainly you know not a paragon this is a guy who starlin envisioned as a schizophrenic um, and so he is taking him on a journey through madness itself, you know, through, you know, through the, through time, you know, he sees what he becomes and, you know, he, he goes mad. He becomes a monster, you know, he becomes the head of a church that is, you know, killing people by, you know, the planet load. He's somebody who is a rival to Thanos himself in terms of how bad he is. And so, you know, his choice is I'm going to commit cosmic suicide. I'm going to kill myself in the future so that I never become the Magus. This, th- that particular story really was an inspiration for me because it really made me see writing differently. And it, be, and it made me see like exactly what you can do with cosmic concepts, you know, because it's not necessarily about, okay, these weird trippy ideas that I, that I got when I, you know, was taking too much LSD, you know, <laughs> it, it, you know, although there is a little bit of that, there's certainly, <laughs> but, you know, but the idea really is, is that you are confronting primal ideas and you're confronting the characters with their own flaws, and they have to change or die, you know, basically. And you, we see that with Warlock. And we see that Warlock's companions do not survive either, at least, you know, for a while until they come back. But but this is the kind of stuff that, that you get. I mean, you have uh, Genisvel, who I'm really, really a fan of. That was Peter David's work. But what he did with that character was, you know, okay, you have cosmic awareness. You have the ability to know everything in the universe. Would that knowledge not drive you insane? And we see the consequences of this and, uh, you know, and all of these, you know, crazy things that, that Jenis does, which seems not to have a purpose, but there's a method to his madness. But ultimately, a lot of this gets caught up in his own family drama because he wants to be as good as his father was and he can't do it because he's not good enough. And so, I mean, all of this is about his own paternal issues with his father 
because he knows on some primal level that he is a failure and can never hit the high point that Marvel did. And so all of this retreat into madness is to avoid that that understanding or that self-awareness. I mean, these are the kinds of crazy ideas that you can do, and, and they're very deeply rooted in psychology. And in fact, uh, Infinity War is very much a Freudian story, if you want to look at that example, because Adam Warlock basically decides, I am going to divest myself of all good and evil. And what ends up happening is, is that they all become monsters trying to destroy the universe. <laughs> and, you know, you have the, you know, you have the mages coming back and then, um, you know, representing the id. And then you have the super ego as represented by the goddess and warlock, who is the ego, having to reconcile these things by confronting them. You know, so you have all of these ideas. But uh, Starlin was very, very influenced by uh, psychology. And even his original characters, Thanos and Eros, um, are built on the idea of the death instinct and the erotic instinct. So all of these things come together. There is so much, so much potential you know, not just for writing these characters and, and for telling good stories, but also for analysis, you know, as scholars. I mean, there is just so much rich material to mine for interpretation, you know, and seeing things in different ways. And and, and that's why I find uh, Marvel Cosmic so fascinating as a corner of the Marvel Universe. Yeah, and I mean, superhero comics are always science fictional. I mean, you can call superhero comics part of the literature of ideas I think but when you have Marvel Cosmic coming more into play it becomes more literally that I mean as you're saying you're dealing with beings who are explicitly concepts and I think it can be really fun to have those kind of characters interact with characters who are more human type characters and you can do certain things with those interactions it's like almost two different genres sort of combusting and interacting mm -hmm. in a way which I think and I will add fun. one other influence that I think Jim Starlin had I am mm -hmm. absolutely convinced that Adam Warlock is at least partly based based on Elric of Melnibene. Um, I think epic fantasy was a huge influence on that character. You have a doomed hero with a soul-sealing weapon, you know, who is facing all of these crazy things in space. It's, you know, it's just that you're transplanting, you know, it from a source and sorcery concept, you know, basically turning him into a space messiah. That's the only real difference. Otherwise, like, 70s Warlock is very much uh, more cock-inspired. Hmm. Yeah, I don't have a hard time believing that. I just a side note, I was very briefly in a band that didn't go anywhere and <laughs> I was the singer in this band and what I did for my songs was to take Marvel Cosmic comic books and just do that as lyrics and there was totally an Adam Warlock song that I can like still sort of remember which I'm not singing on the podcast, but <laughs> <laughs> I thought the listeners would appreciate that little grain, that little nugget from my past. Um Andrew, do you have thoughts about sort of the X-Men and the cosmic universe because i know you've done obviously a lot of work on how these comics sort of interact with that wider universe talking about the brood saga and x-men going to space and so a lot of people hate the x-men in space a lot of people are like they yeah. shouldn't be in space i hate it but what's your argument for why x-men in space is good because i think you think it's good i do um yeah no i, I think i mean the reason the X-Men go to space is because Dave Cockrum, right? Yeah. Dave Cockrum wants the X-Men in space. <laughs> he puts the X-Men in space. <laughs> he drew the Legion. I mean, he loves space. Yeah. So, I mean, there's there's a certain um, existentialism, exactly as Steve is saying, to the sort of Marvel space stories. And the X-Men have very much participated in that, especially in the Brood Saga. The Dark Phoenix Saga can get lumped into Cosmic just because she sort of flies out there. But I think that's actually where there's a really strong connective tissue to this issue. Um, one of the things that I love about the Dark Phoenix Saga is that it has this coda where they defeat the Dark Phoenix and Professor Xavier wins and love and friendship and it's a Final Fantasy ending. <laughs> and then the Shi'ar show up and they have a bill to pay, right? Uh, mm -hmm. And that drags it into the cosmic. So it's like a cosmic coda. And I think we have that here as 
well. We've got the cross time caper wrapped up and Galactus is showing up and saying, you know, no, we got to take the Phoenix. So I, I think there's a really cool kind of parallel to be had there. I think this issue's quality, um, as we've already kind of discussed, gets lost a little bit because of the artwork. Um, whereas otherwise, I think there's a lot of profundity to bringing Galactus in to drag us into that cosmic territory and the existentialism it represents. I love the scene of drawing out the Phoenix's power and all the stars start to go out. Mm-hmm. that's kind of cool death shows up that's kind of cool even neil gaiman's death shows up <laughs> it's really i know, cool. yeah. I know. <laughs> that was wonderful i love that yeah so there's, there's half a lot neil happening death, half sand half morpheus it's, it's a weird it's a weird version of her and the classic x-men version of death as well just not drawn very similarly yeah <laughs> <laughs> that confused me because of the art, but yes, I was like, I get what yeah. it's going for, but yeah. I mean, I want to talk about the Phoenix Force in this issue and whether what's happening with it here is interesting or not. And maybe I'll give you a first crack at it, Mav, because we haven't heard from you in a while. Do you have thoughts on that? How did you feel about the use of the Phoenix Force here? Did you like this semi-resolution of Rachel's storyline? <laughs> this is an impossible question to answer, and, and for, for very weird reasons. I didn't like it back then. I didn't like it back then because when I'm reading this as a 1991 16-year-old, 17 i have a very different view on how continuity works than i do now i'm trying to make everything make sense and yes as a 2021 reader i am very very well aware of the out and out war that claremont is having with Byrne and everybody else Mm -hmm. you know what what means what in 1991 i did not understand that i did not care and this was confusing and 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 because it is not how i'm the kid who you know starting in fifth grade so younger than this just started reading cover to cover the official handbook to the marvel universe like i'm very invested in wanting this to be one cohesive story and claremont is basically saying the hell with this i don't want what you did like that's what this story does and i'm more okay with that now than i was then um but it, it i found it very uncomfortable to read because of that and it it screwed with me now you know 20 something years later 30 years later yeah 30 years later wow i'm old um (laughs) 30 years later it bothers me less because what is and isn't the phoenix has changed so many times Mm -hmm. you know claremont through hickman like with you know morrison in between and who else and and who knows who who else you know burn at this time right like there's so many different versions of what the phoenix force is and what it does and how it works that i can just say you know what the phoenix force is what it needs to be for this story and like sort of let it go but that does put me in the same sort of neverwhere that the the missed doctor who opportunities do here like where i'm not sure if the if he kept going with this and there wasn't going to be more shifting because i don't know if we're going to talk about it too much on our show but we're going to move from this into days of future present which is happening very soon chronologically. And then there's going to be other shifts in the X-Men books proper. Claremont's going to leave and things are going to get really weird all over the place. So I don't know how much um, it it feels very much like an aborted storyline to me. 
to where I would have wanted more to happen with this other than if you're going to place Rachel on the same level as Galactus, then you better do something with it before you abandon the book. And he's not going to get to. Yeah, it is a big deal to make that argument in this comic. Mm -hmm. And we can forget what a big deal that is because it it doesn't get lost because it gets brought back up in the Davis run. Like some of these Phoenix plot threads are going to come up again. But they're not the same ones. I mean, he does his own thing. Yeah. Yeah. But like I did like... Well, I don't know if I liked it or not, but I was interested in, we've been talking about Claremont trying to take control of the Phoenix story from the retcons that were done without him and stuff. And it felt like there was a lot of that going on here, like once Mm -hmm. again, I mean, in terms of the emphasis on Phoenix being like a life giver and a life taker, and especially (laughs) just putting Rachel on this cosmic level to having her beat up Nova twice so emphatically reminded me of that thing. Yeah. With barely a thought. She's yeah, like, I know. Yeah, just you're, so... you're gone. I'm throwing you to the moon. <laughs> and who made uh, Frankie uh, Frankie Ray into Nova? John Byrne. Did he, oh, yeah, he is metaphorically he beating up John Byrne. Yeah. Did he? I, uh, wow, I guess that did he write those fantastic books? Yeah, he did. Yeah. Wow. yeah okay. Not a good run, story yeah. either. <laughs> I, I I never I never realized I've never, never made that connection. Yeah. Frankie Ray is the daughter of Phineas Horton, who created the original Human Torch, and then she gets flame powers by getting into some chemicals of his or something, and then he creates her this transparent suit to repress her flame and hypnotizes her into believing she doesn't have flame powers. She gets into a relationship with Johnny Storm and then realizes she has flame powers in some sort of psychic way. I don't know. But then Galactus comes to Earth and she agrees to become his herald, and she's told explicitly, well, you're going to have to kill a lot of people and she's like i'm good with it that's fine <laughs> but she's not but she's not this is um this is one place where i don't think claremont is quite up to snuff because it's not his character it's not his thing i am a also an avid silver surfer fan at this point right so i'm reading that run and nova's not behaving correctly it does feel like the first time he's written this character <laughs> and, and i don't know if he quite has a handle on her or the galactus relationship it, it, it felt a little i appreciate that you're going to try to put phoenix on this cosmic level but the stories are going to get much smaller after this for him and then also if she's on this cosmic level that galactus comes here galactus is you know doing a lot of stuff for reed to not come rushing right like Mm -hmm. reed richard's job is when galactus lands on earth oh wherever you are come out right now like some you know it should be it should have been a bigger event galactus landing is not something that Excalibur handles on its own. Galactus and he had made a vowel. Yeah. Which he referenced. He referenced that literally in this comic like a few issues mm-hmm. ago. It is it's a very odd, out of place kind of thing. But again, 30 years later, I'm willing to like sort of throw my hands up and just deal with it because it gets us where we need to go. And I don't know. I don't know if that makes it timeless or if it makes it weird, right? Okay, I never like to speak ill of a female character because I think every female character is often the victim of bad writing and deserves better, but I don't like Frankie Ray Nova. She's Ever? Like, no, I really don't. She's really? like, I feel like the way that she's defined as a character is that she has serious morality problems and barreling into situations with thoughtlessly and everything is kind of her whole deal and that is kind of what she does here too i mean noran rad works really hard on her to try to develop her sense of morality and in a way i like that about the character i think she's a villain and i think that that can be actually productive because she actually isn't redeemable and is not interested in being redeemed and that actually is interesting but i actually think she doesn't feel out of character to me here terribly 
I, so I think we should talk about that a little bit because I, I think I have a very similar reading to you. I would not call her a villain. I think that the reason her and Norrin's relationship doesn't work out is she is amoral. She just doesn't care one way or the other. Like the adventure yeah, yeah, of it yeah, is yeah. More, like she's not like I don't think Frankie wants to hurt anybody. I think that it doesn't occur to her. Look, this was a means to an end. Yeah. Uh, ultimate cosmic power. I just got to let him eat some planets. I'm good with mm-hmm. that because Norrin, the uh, Silver Surfer for people who not up on <laughs> Marvel Cosmic, his entire deal was he was willing to make a deal with the devil to save people, even if it cursed him forever. Frankie is not that person and when when that when when the 1990s silver surfer comic starts and he tries to noren tries to sort of you know oh we can relate we both are galactus heralds we can have a relationship and he doesn't understand that they're not the same people that's the tragicness of our love she likes this and not that not that she likes hurting people hurting people doesn't matter she's a cosmic being now she likes being a cosmic being in a way that he doesn't so i think that makes her interesting out she's but again you're right she's bad she's not or i wouldn't say she's evil but i would say she's bad can i just say one thing quick steve and then we'll, we'll i'll come back to you i agree with you mav and mm-hmm. i should rephrase that she's a character that i sort of love to hate sort of similarly to how we feel about brian but yeah i will i will say <laughs> that the thing with me about her if she had an interesting motivation for why she's like that i would find it a little bit more interesting like That's i'm fair. like a female character who wants to have all this power and just wants to throw all caution to the wind and jump into this adventure and have that amoral sense that you're talking about i actually think that can be really interesting but i don't think that that's part of her motivation in a way that's convincing it's just why she's like it's this just who she it's is. not explained yeah yeah, yeah. yeah there's yeah. no there's no there is no explanation i agree with that it's just who she is and you just have to like kind of roll with it or the story doesn't happen yeah, yeah. anyway steve go ahead yeah that, that that kind of leads in me and my question um i know that this was probably done before this story but i know that there was a starlin silver surfer story that came like after the Engelhart run where Surfer basically is uh, conf- confronts Galactus and then Galactus reveals basically that his soul uh, Noren's soul was altered you know so as you know to basically make it morally easier for him to lead him to an inhabited world how to what extent did did Galactus tamper with Frankie Ray I don't think he had to. <laughs> you mean, he probably didn't, but I, I'm. I want to raise the question because I think it's interesting. It's never implied that he. I mean, it's never implied that he does. There is there is a part of the arc that I don't like where Anna was saying about not liking just sort of choices they make. There's a part of the arc which implies that he that Galactus and Frankie Ray fall in love with each other. Oh, I hate stupid. that. I hate it. I hate it. it it's no. stupid and bad. But for the most part, up until then, no, she just she was like into it because oh oh my god, ultimate cosmic power yes please was her motivation and i don't think i don't think he actually manipulates her at all because there because if i recall correctly when it happens and you said you've read them more recently than i have anna probably when she's offered the choice there's like a there's like the moment with johnny of no 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 you don't have to do this and she's like no i'm good <laughs> like yeah. she she voluntarily does this because cool, and my, you know my head canon of it is that she's been manipulated by so many men that this is her revenge and i think that that could work really well but that's never mm. been explicitly written into the story I, I like that idea that would be my that's my pitch for the frankie ray series that i'm gonna i'm gonna go from saying i hate her to being like i'm gonna re-envision her in a comic book and she's gonna be great um anyway um let's talk about some other things um maybe i'll get andrew did you have thoughts about rachel and the phoenix force and some of the revelations that we have here because i feel like we haven't really sort of touched on it that much because we got on this 
sidetrack of talking about Silver Surfer comics, but um, did you have thoughts about what's going on with the Phoenix Force here? Does this change our understanding of what the Phoenix Force means? I think one of the things it does, just in sort of wrapping up the cross-time caper, is giving a little bit of purpose to what was otherwise just kind of a fun romp, uh, that the cross-time caper was um, a major sort of revelation for Rachel in terms of not just who she is, but how her power works uh, and its unique position in the Omniverse. Um, so I think there's a nice kind of, um, um, I don't know, denouement to be snotty uh, happening here. <laughs> well, let's talk about that then. Let's talk about the cross time caper is over, still over, as we have on the cover in the little cover tag. Do we want to do any reflecting on what that means? I mean, we've had this cross time caper. We talked about it as the definitive Excalibur story arc, but what does that mean? Like, how do we feel about the caper having gone through it on the podcast, revisiting it all these years later? I'll like I'll start with you, Steve, because we were we had a scheduling issue. We were supposed to actually have you on for an earlier issue that mm-hmm. would have been within the cross time caper. So I know you're primed to talk cross time caper. Where do you feel like we're at at the end of the cross time caper? Like, why is that thought of as the definitive Excalibur story arc? And do you think that it is the definitive Excalibur story arc? How does the team cobble? last in and around the caper where have we arrived um i think it's certainly the biggest uh excalibur story i mean it's certainly bigger than anything that happened in the first year of the book uh, i mean and 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 honestly like the, i think it's kind of, i don't know i don't know if it's necessarily like an like a huge arc in and of itself i guess you could read it that way as so much as like a lot of uh, collections of smaller stories that kind of add up to something bigger and then you have this um, epilogue at the end with Rachel and the Phoenix, uh, which would have been so much bigger, I think, you know, had Davis uh, drawn it, because then there would have been more of a visual connective tissue between it. I, I, I don't know. I think when I was reading it originally, I was just like, OK, well, I'm glad that's over <laughs> because um, it, this, this story dragged on a long time. Uh, I, if I have any criticisms of it, it is that it really, really went on a long, long time. And we kind of wanted to see them get back to Earth and we wanted to see them meet each other again and have that and it seems like that and we do get that but that's like the end, the very end of Claremont's run and then he's gone we never got to see him pick up from that and we and that's kind of really kind of a shame so pretty much we have the first year on the book where you know they're fighting Nazis and and, and all these other things that they're doing you know they're dealing with the tech net and the, and the crazy gang and all of this you know doing more conventional stories and then you have the cross time caper which is completely upends everything and makes it into a different book for a year well over a year um, and so you get all these really interesting stories where you have Kurt Wagner you know being warlord of Mars which honestly is my favorite issue of the entire series so correct um, answer. If, you know so if you want to say if you want to say okay is this the best uh, Excalibur story well it has Kurt War- Wagner warlord in it so I have to there I have to give it that by default um but do I think it's like a huge story I don't I don't know that I necessarily think that because there's no time for reflection at any point you know we never see what any of the characters learn we never see how they grow necessarily as a team because there's not no time for it you know it's basically okay we have this battle with Galactus you know then we have this weird story with uh Janie Braddock and the Nth Man, uh, which I, I'm not sure anybody really read at all, other than me. Uh, and, and then, and then you have these fill-ins with Michael Higgins and and Terry Austin and all of that. And then you get the girls' school story, which is you know Kitty Pride, you know, not realizing that Excalibur is alive, you know, in girls' school with Ms. Miro and and all of these other things. And and so it's like, okay, are, is all that meant to be the whole story? You know, because it it feels like that there are parts of a whole, but I don't get the sense that like, it's not like the Dark Phoenix saga where, okay, this is beginning, middle and end. 
You know, this is where the characters come as a result of this. You know, this is the big event that happens, and these are the consequences, and this is what they do moving forward. I think the cross-tied caper is unique in the respect that it really isn't that, and yet it feels like, you know, there is a hold to it, and it does feel like there's a resolution to it, at least in the sense that, okay, you know, they get back home, and they catch up together again, and they meet together again, and then they go on as a team. I, I just wonder how much of the outcome of this is because Claremont leaves the book uh, not too long later, and then after that, he leaves the X-Men entirely with X-Men 1 through 3. So um, I'm kind of wondering, had Claremont been able to stay on the book, what would he have done? And, you know, is this where he would have left it? Or is he, or did he leave it this way because this was all he had time for? And I really don't know. But there are some really awesome issues in the middle of it. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I'm, I'm glad I was around for the ride. But man, you know, it's just definitely a unique experience uh, for good and ill. <laughs> well, I mean, I wonder if one of the useful ways to talk about where we've arrived is to think about the character beats that we have in this particular issue, because there are a number mm -hmm. of interesting ones which, we, which we've touched on already. We have Megan drawing power from the Earth to become the size of Galactus and like getting... <laughs> I want to call it getting cock-blocked, but I kind of hate that expression. But this mm. keeps happening to Megan where she is going to have this big epic fight with somebody and someone's like, no, Megan, not now. This has been like the fifth <laughs> time. Can you imagine what would happen if Davis had drawn that? Oof, would have been nice. Because that should be a huge moment for Megan as well. I mean, mm -hmm. there's some things that, with her powers that makes no sense in this issue, though. She has like laser blast hands now and that... Sometimes, what? sometimes she has that. She's had yeah, them before. That's yeah, true. And, yeah, a, yeah. and then, and then she won't have them for like ten issues because she just yeah. forgets that she can shoot stuff, which yeah. you know would be no. It's sort of like when Brian forgets he can fly, which he does a lot. Brian Megan has two modes. Either she's the ditzy person who watches television all the time and and mopes about Brian, or she is this ridiculously powerful woman who will absolutely mess you up uh, if you threaten her friends. And and in this issue, we definitely got the powerful Megan and I, I always like to see uh, those moments because that's when she's really really interesting yeah and I mean I like that contrast to like in her character too I think that's one of the interesting things about her but I mean in terms of other character beats we have this little scene where Nightcrawler is you know Rachel go with Alistair like do his plan she has the reflection on you know sure thing fuzzy like you always seem to what well, I want to like know what her specific line is there because I think it's important you're the boss fuzzy funny now that I mention it he almost always is and it's a great little scene just in terms of there's an economy of representation there that I think is actually well done. And I think it's actually well visualized too. We get Rachel and Alistair flying through the various rooms of the lighthouse, which is a nice callback to the domestic texture of Excalibur that we haven't seen for a very long time. Although once again, wish it was Davis, but still, I think it was well done within the confines of this issue. In terms of other character beats, we don't see a ton of character growth for Brian in this issue. We do see him having to... <laughs> Uh, try to come up with different ways to fight. He's sort of throwing himself headfirst into things and not succeeding and has to get rescued by Megan and Kurt in this issue. Um, but certainly we see the evolution of Rachel's powers and some kind of understanding of her place in the universe. And we see Kitty oh, embarking on... Is an important one. Yes. Well, let's talk about that, Andrew. Go ahead. Oh, sorry. I just wanted to add to the list. Um, she gets a scene where she acknowledges that she's fully known that Alistair is in love with him or in love with her. Mm -hmm. um, and she kisses him, but expressly states that she cannot reciprocate those feelings. That's a big well, she thinks she's, But she also thinks she's going to die right there. So it's she's like, oh, yeah, I've always known, but I'm going to go die now. So which is a weird, you know, 
flex, I guess. <laughs> well, I mean, how do we read that then? Do you read that as kind of the comic? Is this having his cake and eating it too thing with being vague enough about why Rachel can't reciprocate and having the, you know, get out of jail free card of she's about to die. So we're not supposed to read more into that line. No, she says I could never return the same. Yeah, that's to what me, I that's because mm. I'm in love with Kitty. <laughs> or, or at the very least, I mean, because we've talked about the possibility that Rachel's actually asexual as well, too. And I think you could read that that's into true. this as well. There's a lot of different things you could read into this but definitely she can't reciprocate these feelings from Alistair. She's a very haunted woman is the thing. I mean, she has suffered so much and mm-hmm. um, I, I think a lot of that still stays with her and it affects her relationships. I don't, I feel like she can't feel like she, she can't, even though she's a telepath and thus knows what everybody's thinking, she feels like she can't get close to anybody, you know, because she is so damaged and because, mm-hmm. you know, death is always mm-hmm. following her and because she has this cosmic destiny that puts her on a di- that she has to deal with alone and that nobody can relate to. Um, I think a lot of that is swirling in the back of her mind. Uh, Rachel is such a a fascinating character, and and yet we never really see the depths of her uh, the way I kind of wish we that we would have, and I wish that Claremont had. Yeah, yeah me too. You see more of it not here though. I mean, again, um, as I said, we are on the cusp of Days of Future Present, which is going to definitely talk about Rachel's capacity to, I mean, love Franklin if nothing else. You know, mm-hmm. and there's a lot to her character. I always have trouble with the, while I respect it, I, I have trouble with the Rachel is asexual reading because of things like her Franklin relationship and because yeah, I see yeah. the Kitty relationship. Like these explicit moments that I feel like you have to do too much ignoring to get to. And um, I, I will say I, too that I don't yeah. like it to the extent that there can be an implication there that going through trauma makes you asexual and that's not necessarily a good thing to suggest. So I want to make sure that I'm not right. suggesting that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 I'm not trying to imply that. Yeah. I, I just believe, I mean, honestly, it's enough to be like, look, you're a nice guy. I appreciate it. Look, I'm going to die. So I'm going to kiss you, but understand that I never, you know, I, yeah. I could never have returned to this feeling. I mean, it, it could just mm-hmm. be that simple, right? Like, it's just, yeah. I don't feel the same way. It It's not really clear, but I think what it's supposed to do is it's supposed to be this moment to just sort of, to show you, you know, the depth of Rachel's, her actual emotions, right? Because if she's always known, that means she spent the last year and a half, you know, on this train, just not talking about it. Like that's, and that's interesting. I think that she's been, you know, she's been just keeping it to herself, even though she knows. And that's that's something that needs to be sort of respected as if that's what Claremont wanted to do with the character I think that aloofness that is Rachel and always has been since the X-Men days you know she's she's got so much trauma that she has trouble connecting with people she has trouble trusting people and then once she decides she does i.e. Kitty even here where she even even if you take the romantic bit out she mm-hmm. makes it very clear time and time and time and time again I am your roommate I'm gonna use all my power in the world just to destroy this sword because yeah. I'm your roommate you know I love you this is a that, that's who mm-hmm. Rachel is yeah so. and also she's her she's her her father's daughter and her dad her dad is the most closed <laughs> off person in the world Except yeah. and, not- and i don't think the apple fell that very far yeah. from the summer street I mean, I think the kiss, too, reckons with this identity of the phoenix as a force of passion as well. I mean, we've seen sort of the cosmic kiss with Jean, you know, at various times. I mean, there's even a scene in X-Men The End where she kisses Kurt in a very similar fashion. And it doesn't really mean that they're into each other. It's more just like a cosmic embrace. So, I mean, it relates to the phoenix force being presented here as a force of life and passion as well, I would argue. Mm -hmm. Andrew, thoughts about wrapping up the cross-time cabra? I want to give everybody a chance. 
Um, other than what I've already said. Um, Where do you think Excalibur yeah, has arrived yeah. in the wake of the cross-time caper? What did the cross-time caper do for uh, okay, fomenting will... our vision of what Excalibur is? So I will make a, a maybe unpopular argument. I, I think Excalibur belongs on the cross-time caper. I, I think mm. the sort of zaniness and the rotating settings, they're ideal for the kind of team that they are in terms mm-hmm. of um, being fourth wall breaking and self-aware and dysfunctional. Um, I think they work really, really well and i think even in terms of just like keeping them isolated from the marvel main universe which is obviously mm-hmm. something they were doing we talked about that with inferno that's so much easier to do when they're off in a parallel dimension so the cross time caper had to end but i think that that maybe wasn't in the best interest of this book i will say so that when i think exiled? about yeah i mean basically <laughs> yeah. yeah 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 i mean you want to be exiles right which is yeah it was exiles yeah. before it was exiles before exiles <laughs> was even a thing i mean that's that, that's what's so great about this book right i mean when i have my when i think about my hardcore Excalibur nostalgia. I always think of the team. I think of the team at the lighthouse and some of those early issues, just having quiet moments, domestic moments together. But I also think about them on the caper. That is like where my central Excalibur nostalgia is located, which is not that I don't like, I mean, the Davis run in terms of my Nightcrawler fandom, there's just so much I'm excited to talk about there. But definitely when I think about Excalibur, I think about them on the caper. Mav, thoughts about wrapping up the caper? I'm I'm in kind of the same place as everybody else. I found the end of it a letdown i said that last episode um mm-hmm. because it ends when saturnine gets bored with it like she's like <laughs> you know what i'm i'm done with the story so you're all going home now ta-da i could have done this at any point that i wanted yeah. to and that's odd to me <laughs> like like it's like oh yeah god just showed up and just said you're done you know bye and that's kind of a problem for me because to me, it undercut a little bit of what did people learn? And of course, part of that is also because the creative team is going to change now, right? Like we we don't have Davis and Claremont together again, right? Like we will from here on out have one or the other. Like I think that made it feel weirdly anticlimactic and I'm not sure what they were supposed to have learned, what they were supposed to have changed into because once the team is back together, which will take a while, they're going to be very different, but in a way that doesn't feel earned towards that difference because it's a different creative team. So in as much as once they're back here, like we, we're going to have a bunch of flashback issues. We already, we've already had some of them, right? Where we've had like the Dru- yeah, the Demon um, Druid ish- story. Demon, yeah. Dru- Demon Druid story. We've got one coming up where we're going to have weird, like sort of out of continuity somewhere issues to where I don't feel like the organic growth that the cross time caper that was supposed to create happened quite the way it was sort of implicitly promised at the beginning because the team split up and I, and I never Mm -hmm. really feel the resolution, even girls school from heck. I don't feel the resolution when when we get there. It feels like an aborted choice. Um, The best way I can explain this um, I think is to look at, you know, you mentioned earlier, I guess Steve mentioned the, the dark Phoenix saga, right? And dark Phoenix saga, I've made this comment before just, to people that I'm, when I'm talking about old school, early '80s comics, where you know, where you know, the Dark Phoenix saga. Well, how did you not know that she was going to turn bad if her name was Dark Phoenix? How did you not know that Tara was going to turn bad in Teen Titans? It's called the Judas co- Contract. If that's the name of the arc, and I'm like, what's an arc? It's 1984. I've never heard of an arc before. <laughs> like, that, like I, I have storytelling at this point where you know, storyline A point eventually dovetails into B, into C, into D, and it's this ongoing like progression. 
and I don't know what trade paperbacks are. They haven't been invented yet. And like, you have to read this era of comics like that. And now we're hitting 1991 where there's a transition gradually into this event base. We are moving from story A to story B. Cross Time Caper is a story in and of itself. But it, since it feels unended, because I don't know that storytelling has figured out how to move from event to event yet, it feels weird to me. Everything about it feels unfinished to where it's a letdown because it just stops. It stops narratively and it stops developmentally and everything seems aborted to me and that makes it so weird. And I want to like it. I want to like it so much because it really is the thing I think about. I think if I think Andrew's right. If they just stayed on that train forever, I'd probably be okay with it, right? Because I think of this, when I think of Excalibur, as much as I love it and as much as I'm going to love the remaining 90 some odd issues, <laughs> I'm going to, uh, 90, 99, in fact, I think. <laughs> and uh, and, uh, and I'm going to, plus, you know, specials. I'm going to, I'm going to love all these, all these remaining issues. And yet they feel weird to me because it just feels very different. This arc was it for me. It was what I think of with Excalibur, even with all the ones that I complained about, which were, were several of them. <laughs> I think my charitable reading as this for a wind down issue is that, and again, I think some of these moments would have landed better with Davis because Davis is the definitive Excalibur artist to, so to have, you know, the issue that was supposed to wrap up the arc to not have him on it is perhaps the most painful issue to not have him on. So, I mean, when you see them faced with Galactus, the world eater, and he wants to take Phoenix, he wants to break up their team, their family, because they've become a family over the course of this arc and they just immediately are like no like we're gonna fight to the death to prevent this i think that that's supposed to be the coalescing moment i don't know mm. that it lands perfectly because i think that they would have done that at issue one <laughs> like they were already you know three of them already were family you know, you know and kitty rachel and, would have. Yeah. and then and since uh, i think you're right except for brian doesn't get enough episode yeah. play here yeah. Like that, the, Megan will will die to protect anybody. That's just mm -hmm. who she is, right? Mm -hmm. And Brian is who. If if you had a story where Brian really felt like he'd become part of the family here, like he says, I'm willing to I'm willing to go up against Galactus by myself, which is a great emotional moment, but it makes him look stupid rather than than emotionally part of the family. So I think that that could have worked. And maybe this was a thing where you know that where Claremont's writing with the Marvel method, so it with with Davis it might have gelled better i don't know this definitely should have ended with an epic excalibur hug and we didn't get that <laughs> uh, so <laughs> and there's no kitty there to hug them i know yeah. i know <laughs> final thoughts anything that anybody wants to get off their chest before we leave this issue and the cross time caper forever in the rearview mirror i'm sure we'll be mentioning it in other episodes but still final thoughts from anybody steve i'll let you go first okay um i'm gonna talk a little bit about the prologue through the girl school stuff yeah. Um, we'll be talking I really, about that lots, yeah. Yeah, since I'm not going to be around for those, I figure mm -hmm. I might as well just get it out now. I feel like um, Courtney, or Satyr 9, uh, who she really is, really ends up being wasted because we never see the result of her attempts to corrupt Kitty. We never see what her true vision for her is. Mm -hmm. Like, why are you spending all of this time, you know, trying to mold her you know, into this um, a proper, you know, upper class girl, um, you know, who's doing all of these things. And then you're just going to do what? You're just going to watch with a pair of binoculars as, you know, she goes <laughs> and, and beats up these girl students. And I'm, and I'm just thinking, you know, what, there's so much more to this. I mean, and we've seen Claremont, you know, do uh, corruption stories before, mm -hmm. and they've been dragged out. And when he has had time to do them, I mean, they've been some amazing, amazing things, uh, but we didn't see it here. And I just feel like, you know, all of that is interesting. 
But I will say the setup for it, I really did like because it's classic Kitty Pride. This is this girl thinks she's going to walk in there and just absolutely own the entire place, you know, and she thinks she can just go and, and, and basically steamroll over these people. And of course, um, I'm sitting here laughing, reading this years later, not remembering the storyline until I read it later thinking, yeah, uh, that's not going to happen. This is Claremont setting you up to get steamrolled. And it is a really, really so well done. I love her uh, her absolute overconfidence, you know, coming into this. It is so typically her, especially after she's gone through the cross-time paper. And here she is thinking, okay, I'm the only one person who got back. I'm the only one person, you know, who was able to go through this ordeal and survive. You know, after this, I can take on anything. Um, no, you can't. <laughs> no, you can't. You cannot handle the real world with real people in it. I am sorry. That is not your thing. Your thing is being, you know, really smart genius ninja girl. This is not your thing. <laughs> and 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 I just and I am just really really loving how Claremont sets her up for a fall uh, with this epilogue. It's just amazing. Yeah, Kitty's my favorite character. I don't deny. It. <laughs> I mean, very identifiable. The like, you need to go to school because you don't play well with others, and you're like, ah, oh, damn it, that stupid <laughs> like everybody trying to control me. It's just so good. <laughs> so good other final thoughts from you andrew mav um mine is um i'm gonna sort of stand in for anna here mostly because i want to ask her the question and also i guess for andrew because it's a it's a nightcrawler and a megan fan club question which is wozniak does something that oh, yeah. well with kurt that i hate um so, some artists do it's a different it's a it's an impression that some artists do this with kurt and some don't and then since Megan has taken Kurt's form, she does it. I don't like that the, when the shadow over Kurt's eyes is depicted as him having black skin on his eyes. Mm. <laughs> and to me, that is supposed to be shadow. And he does this thing where, you know, where it's just like a mask that's permanently on his face. And then when Megan, who uh, I'm not sure why she adopts Kurt's form here. Yeah, that she just, just does it sometimes. Yeah. And, and, and it's not like no one at this point, I guess they're just bored with the, with the idea. So like, the rest of Excalibur is like, yeah, she just turns into Kurt sometimes, whatever. But like normally when Davis um, draws her, draws her as him, she's just blue. She gets the mask here too. And it, it looks weird. I don't like it. So <laughs> I was just, I was curious as to how you guys felt about it. It looks like wrestling face paint and I don't love it. Yes. I think that that gets back to huge problems having to do with Kurt's power set and whether his hiding in shadows thing is real yeah. or not real. <laughs> because in Dave Cockrum's character sheet, it says that he generates that shadow effect himself, which would suggest he can put that on and take it off. And I think that that would make a lot of sense in terms of he can put on that effect when he wants to and hide in shadows when he wants to. And if he doesn't want to use it, he can turn it off. And I think that would make a lot of sense and nobody has bothered to figure that out. Davis tries. Davis really tries. Tries, but anyway and that had been retconned at this point too like they were actively mm -hmm. taking that out in the classic x-men yeah. reprints mm -hmm. to establish that kurt couldn't do that anymore for some reason yeah, <laughs> i can't wait just, till we he's just blue and it's dark over there so that's it <laughs> <laughs> no idea how much i can't wait to get to the davis issue where they go through all of his powers and talk about how great he is and try to really establish nightcrawler's power set before davis leaves the book i'm so excited <laughs> not because it's good but i find it really funny Wanderers, this is Refugee One. Disengage. Repeat, disengage. How about that? Looks like the kid from Venice Beach just went around. 
All right, I think we will end things there. Other than Steve, we've already plugged some of your fabulous work, but remind our listeners again, if you would like them to find you online, where can they find you and what work of yours should they be checking out? Well, yeah, I'm primarily on Twitter at, um, at uh, Shadewing. Uh, it's, it's spelled the way it sounds. Um, <laughs> and I'm also, yeah, and um, I also um, am usually the one running the handle on uh, Revelation Comics uh, Twitter, which is hashtag at uh, Revelation Comics no s on the end and then um as far as my work uh the stuff that i have that's uh, currently published um blitz number one from revelation uh which honestly this is like my passion project the thing that you know i really got into comics to do which is a it's a basically a superhero story i'm trying to do everything you know kind of old school this is where my claremont influence really comes in i think uh which is basically the idea is that there is a uh and it, it kind of like an 18 year old speedster uh, heroine who basically kind of uh, ends up getting uh, super speed and you know she is somebody who is trying to earn a lot of respect she's very impulsive she is somebody you know who tends to jump in first and ask questions later her and she ends up um making an unlikely partnership with a, a gentleman thief uh re- who is claims to be reformed uh named night spider who takes her under his wing and um the and hijinks ensue from there so um that that's that's the thing that i really want to do i mean and yes there's definitely uh, a lot of claremont in that um so yeah it's my most claremontian book and i love it and the other things that i'm doing are um omenverse titles uh which is set in a world where all mythologies are true more or less the two books that i do are uh, white druid and michael nero which is about a arrogant holmesian detective um who has an ability called the third sight which allows him to see uh, other dimensions, um, spirits, demons, weird uh, Lovecraftian things. And he basically um, is a detective so that he doesn't have to deal with these things. Uh, and, and he is partnered up with a Celtic god who is the only person who understands him at all uh, because this guy cannot uh, interact with normal people to save his life. That one's a real fun one to do. And then uh, Guardians of the Lamb um, is my Doctor Who uh, mixed with uh, time travel, mixed with Marauder the She-Wolf, um, if anybody gets the Claremont reference. Um, it I is didn't... basic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, yeah. So, uh, basically, the idea is that, that there are these seven people that are in Roman Jerusalem who end up making a very big mistake. Uh, they ruin time and space, and they have to go through time fixing all of the, the things that they that they broke. So, that, that, so that one's an, a lot of fun, but it's also a lot of research. And beyond that, um, I have a short story called Blood and Ashes, um, which is a post-apocalyptic uh, dark fantasy story out of ASAP Comics UK. Um, I'm not, it is for, it is basically a charity anthology for dyspraxia. I'm not sure exactly when that's coming out. Um, I imagine it'll be within the next year, but I haven't been given an exact uh, publication date on that. But I really enjoyed writing that particular story and it took a, a good part of the summer to do it. And I'm kind of glad that it's finally going to be out soon. Beyond that, I do regular work for Comic Crusaders. I do reviews uh, on, you know, very occasionally comics. I'd really try not to, but I do do TV and movies uh, and video games most of the time, occasional comics reviews as I need to. And I think the most relevant thing for this podcast is uh, my uh, res- retrospective on Claremont's X-Men, which is where I start from the very beginning of Claremont's run on Uncanny and and kind of break it down, uh, do a lot of analytical deep dives, you know, kind of like what we've done here today. And and right now I just finished the Paul Smith run and I'm going to start the Romita run next time. So uh, that should be interesting to get into. I can't wait to get to Life Death because uh, I really love that story. 
Nice. Oh, well, yeah, no arguments here. Thank you so much again, Steve. Thanks for nerding out with us. I had a huge oh. smile on my face as you were describing all those things. Oh, thank you very much. Next, in one week's time, we will be on to episode 27, in which we will be discussing Excalibur number 26, The Times They Are a Change In. It is another Higgins Limb flashback joint, but don't tune out. We've got a great guest to talk us through it. We're going to talk authorial agency and retcons and a bunch of other stuff. It's going to be great. In the meantime, if you liked what you heard, please follow us, like, and review the podcast wherever you're listening to it or watching it. Don't forget to check out our fabulous YouTube videos, which you can find via our website or the Vox Podcast YouTube channel. As always, if you want to chat with us about Excalibur or pitch yourself as a guest for a future episode let us know you can reach out via our website goshgollywow.com where we've got some fun extras and via twitter at goshgollywow where we post daily pages from whatever issue we're reading that week and more fun extras thank you andrew and Mav, for another cosmically enlightening conversation thank you steve for expanding our consciousness thank you all for listening and a special thanks to maximilian of thought Forum music for our truly epic theme song play us out that's it Boop.